Compass Media Networks. This is America's First News. This weekend with your host, Gordon Deal. Calculating life expectancy. I'm Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Thanks for spending part of your Christmas weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour. You may have heard about falling lifespans. Turns out there's more than one way to measure mortality. Hear why things are looking up. Personal finance struggles can affect your performance on the job. That's why some employers offer help in boosting your savings. A handful of new startups are trying to capitalize on the love of local sports. We'll explain the business model. And if you share a bed with someone who snores, rest easy. Experts say it's okay for couples to sleep apart. The research now is so massive on how important sleep is. It's really the foundation of our health. And so if you're not getting good sleep, nothing else is going to follow after that that's very good. So they're saying, these therapists are saying, it's okay to sleep apart because you sleep you should prioritize. Elizabeth Bernstein at the Wall Street Journal on the reversal of a long-held marriage belief. Well, over the past decade, a number of alarming stories have chronicled the decline of U.S. life expectancy in the midst of rising overdose deaths, COVID-19, alcohol-related deaths, and suicides. Turns out there are two ways to measure mortality and life expectancy, and the one you hear about the most paints a misleadingly pessimistic picture of the future. Here's Josh Zumbrun, columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Josh, what did you look at? Well, it is true that suicides, opioids... Um, the pandemic in recent years um, has caused a lot of people to, to die. That part is definitely true. The part that people don't realize is what the life expectancy statistics that they often see in the media actually are. The one that we see all the time, the one that the CDC reports every year, um, the, and, and the one that's gone down in recent years, is something called period life expectancy. And so you've probably heard this described as life expectancy at birth. And so if you've heard that, you probably thought, oh, okay, so this is an estimate based off, you know, statistics about how long a child born today is going to live. And actually, that's not at all what that statistic is. It's it's a poorly named statistic. One of the experts I talked to in the story said, you know, they really shouldn't call this life expectancy at all because that's not what it is. Okay, so what is this statistic? Yeah. It is a measurement of... If a person was born, uh, you know, in 2020, and they lived through the death rates for every single age group that that was experienced in that year 2020, how long would they live? And so there's a really big problem with that calculation that way, which is that, you know, a child born in 2020 isn't going to be a 60-year-old in 2020. They're not going to be a 60-year-old until 2080. Um, and so the calculation is complete is actually completely useless if you're trying to estimate how long a child born today is going to live. And I think a lot of people don't don't realize that that's what that calculation is talking about. So is there a better way to calculate it or, or one that's trusted by others, let's say? Yeah. So if you wanted to actually calculate how long a child born today is is going to live, you'd want to you'd want to think about okay, what's what's happening in our ability to uh, improve people's health? Like, what are the trends? Are more or less people um, dying from cancer? Are more or less people smoking? Are more or less people uh, dying from heart disease over time? And you'd want to estimate, you know, okay, a child born in 2020. What are we? What, what's what's the best guess for what things are going to look like when they're 10 years old in 2030, when they're 20 years old in 2040, 
it's a very different calculation than just assuming that everything that happened in 2020 is going to continue to happen. And we know on a lot of these fronts that there have been really big improvements over time. You know, the amount of people, uh, the, the, the survival rates for cancer treatment have improved a lot in 25 years. Um, they're still, you know, they're still too high and it's still a major source of death, but it's something that researchers are actually making a lot of good progress on. And the reality is that the declines that we've seen over the past 25 years in cancer deaths is actually much bigger than the increases we've seen in recent years from some of these things like suicide and opioids. Mm -hmm. And so what you would expect and what, you know, the Social Security Administration has to calculate this very carefully. And what they expect is that, you know, a child born in 2022 is probably going to live longer than a child born at any time in in history. Um, You know, so in that sense, that very real sense of what we expect for people's life, it's, it's going up. It's higher than it's ever been. We're speaking with Josh Zumbrin. He writes the numbers column at the Wall Street Journal. His piece is called The Surprisingly Good News on Life Expectancy. It's still going up. What was the point uh, in your piece about cohort life expectancy? Yeah, so cohort life expectancy is the actual calculation of how long a cohort is going to live. And so it takes, you know, a child born in 2020, a child born in 2000, a person born in 1980, and actually calculates, okay, how long is this cohort of people going to live? Again, the problem with the main life expectancy rate, especially right now, is it looks at the death rates Um, for the year that we just had. Um, And so you can see why in the pandemic this is a huge problem because what it's assuming essentially is they're saying this is how long a person would live if they experienced the worst part of the COVID pandemic every single year of their life. That's what the standard life expectancy calculation that you that you see reported in the media ca- calculates. Um, and when you're in the middle of something like a pandemic, that's a very poor calculation. If you're if you're actually interested in how long people are going to live, because obviously you know the pandemic was was terrible. It had a horrible toll, um, but it only lasted for a couple years. It didn't last for people's entire lives. And so if you're calculating that as if it would last for an entire life, of course it gives you a much worse statistic than if you were actually looking looking at, you know, what might someone born today expect over the next 60, 80, 100 years. Thanks, Josh. Josh Zumbrin, columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Coming up next, startups turning to sports. Hey, everyone, it's Gordon Deal here to talk about some of the most fun you can have if you love sports, and that's with Prize Picks. Prize Picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. You pick more than or less than on a handful of player projections and watch the winnings roll in. For example, mix and match football and basketball. Maybe your entry is Christian McCaffrey for more than 99 yards rushing and Jason Tatum for fewer than eight rebounds. If you know your stuff, you can turn 10 bucks into $250 with just a few taps. My friends and I love it. To get started and have your first deposit matched up to $100, go to prizepicks.com deal and use code deal. Also, if a player you pick gets injured and leaves the game, prize picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. Your player is rebooted prizepicks.com slash deal and use the code deal. That's prizepicks.com slash deal and the code deal. Again, prizepicks.com slash deal and code deal. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. If you love your sports, you'll be pleased to know that several new startups have emerged in recent years, hoping to build a business on local sports fandom. More from Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at The Washington Post. Ben, what's trending? 
Yeah, I did a story that sort of looked at a couple of startups, um, one in Baltimore, one in Denver, Phoenix, and another one in Oklahoma that are uh, covering your local sports teams or, or their local sports teams at the same time where, you know, famously the Athletic was going to cover a lot of local sports, but they pulled back a bit and local newspapers consider, you know, continued to, um, you know, sort of fight a lot of uh, headwinds um, in terms of um, their business. And so, you know, teams of, or fans of teams, um, you know, that aren't necessarily the Yankees and Lakers, yeah. you know, look around and wonder what their coverage is going to look like. Um, I took a look at a few of these startups. What do they think they can do here? Uh, well, there's a couple different ones. There's, there's like a video podcast company that's, that's launched, um, outlets in, in Denver, Phoenix, Chicago, and Philadelphia. And they think you can sort of create these fan communities um, and, and build a business around that. And in Baltimore, there's a, a nonprofit, you know, civic minded newsroom that was like, if we're going to cover Baltimore, we've got to actually have a lot of sports reporters, which is kind of interesting. And then in Oklahoma, there was, um, uh, a new site that, that hired away some, um, you know, big time columnists from, from the newspaper in Oklahoma city and essentially turning them into influencers where, local businesses can sponsor them, you know, directly. Um, and then in, in others, there's, there's people who have gone to Substack um, to cover teams. So sort of an array of different models. They're, they're talking about marketing dollars being a really big deal. You know, some of them are subscription dollars. Um, but the idea is that local sports, sort of these rabid fandoms, these communities, um, which in years past have really been, you know, super important to local newspapers, is there's, there's really still a model and, and there's still good business to, to really covering these teams that people care about. Well, we're speaking with Ben Strauss, sports and media reporter at the Washington Post. His piece is called As Local Sports Coverage Suffers, Startups Try Again to Fill the Void. All right, so dive deeper into uh, the banner, which is uh, covering like the, you know, the Baltimore Orioles and the Ravens. Like In the ALDS, they made quite the commitment. Yeah. Um, so you have this newsroom, this new like nonprofit newsroom in Baltimore, um, focused on accountability in the city. And, you know, they were like, we're, we'll cover sports, but we'll get to it. And, you know, they went and they did these listening tours around the community and everybody was like, where's your Orioles coverage? Where's your Ravens coverage? Um, and it certainly helps that, that the Orioles are very good and after being you know terrible for years and years yeah. but they um they have 11 sports reporters out of a newsroom of like 70 which is you know pretty pretty intensive um and they they you know sent five people to the the home playoff games or i'm sorry more than five and then to texas for game three of the uh division series they sent five people which is you know, wow. somewhat um, remarkable in this yeah. day of uh, media belt tightening, you know, at all levels. So um, they're like pot- really committed to the Orioles um, and the Ravens. What was the plan behind uh, that all city network? The all city network is this guy in um, Denver, um, former um, radio host, radio executive, um, who is, these are sort of like fan community things where in in denver there's a a daily video podcast you know for the nuggets and for the rockies um and the avalanche and the same thing in these other markets for every team they get a daily video podcast and it's it's very like fan centric you know some people on set are, are literally called fanalists they do a lot of events in denver they've opened a bar um that's branded 
you know, with the website name. Um, and there's a lot of marketing dollars. There's a lot of merchandise dollars that they, that they're trying to, to generate. And so, um, that one, they've, they've raised more money, I think, than the other sites. They've raised around $10 million. So it's it actually, like anybody familiar with The Athletic, it sounds much more like The Athletic than some of the other sites, which is like taking these cities, um, these local networks of cities, and knitting them together into this national thing, um, you know, using a lot of venture capital money. Yeah. Um, and they think that they can stay in these markets that The Athletic was like, you know, we're going to get out of here because it's, not economically viable for us because they're doing they've got multiple revenue streams from marketing dollars to subscription dollars to um um to merchandise dollars and hmm. so it's like sort of not just counting on the sub dollars which is what the athletic is doing thanks ben ben strauss sports and media reporter at the washington post coming up next sleeping apart from your spouse due to snoring now your ideas don't have to wait now they have everything they need to come to life Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's dell.com slash welcome to now. Hey, glad you're with us. See if this is your house. Ever tried to get a good night's sleep with your partner snoring or tossing around restlessly next to you? Relax. Therapists and sleep scientists say it's okay to sleep in separate rooms. Here's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka. Don't share a bed with your spouse. That's okay. As Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal tells us, therapists and sleep scientists now say it's okay for couples to sleep apart, a reversal of a long-held rule of marriage. Elizabeth, why do some couples want to sleep separately? Well, I, I think that <laughs> the reasons uh, that couples sleep separately are, are so many. Uh, someone snores, someone tosses and turns, there's different sleep schedules, someone likes to read in bed or watch TV in bed, people want it, some people want it cold, some people want it hot, light, dark, it goes on and on. So the problems of sleeping together are sort of legion, and there's many of them. Uh, the issue is that for so long, uh, couples thought, and, and marriage therapists would say, you know, if you're not sleeping together, the marriage is really over, the romance is over. So now, though, what's happening is sleep scientists, and sex therapists are saying, look, the, the research now is so massive on how important sleep is. It's really the foundation of our health. And so if you're not getting good sleep, nothing else is going to follow after that that's, that's very good. So they're, they're saying, these therapists are saying, uh, scientists, like again, the sleep therapists, the sex therapists are saying, it's okay to sleep apart because you sleep you should prioritize. Um, Elizabeth, what if one person wants to stay sleeping with their spouse and the other wants some space? That's where a good conversation comes in, because we really want to have both partners have a buy-in on this idea. You can't just move to another room and your partner's unhappy. That's, that's not going to help the marriage. You know, we're talking about a sleep separation that both people agree to and are actually pretty happy or excited about. So a good conversation where you use words like I, not you, you know, I don't sleep well. I'm finding my, my day suffering because of my sleep. That, that's important. You can't really say, you know, you're a cover hog or you snore all night. Of course, people who sleep together do it for a number of reasons. Um, How do you replace perhaps the intimacy that you may lose if you're sleeping separately? 
you have to be intentional about it. You really have to build that time into your day then. If you're, you know, we sleep a, a third of our lives together. We sleep a lot of time together. I'm sorry, don't quote me on that. We sleep a lot of time together, uh, many, many hours over the course of a night. So you're going to have a lot, many, many hours over the course of a lifetime. So you're going to really have to build that time in intentionally. You're going to need to plan intimacy dates where you make time to, you know, have sexy time. Uh, cuddling would be good, cut, make time to cuddle. And also one important thing that I think people don't think about is time in bed together with your partner is, is also pillow shock time. So you're going to make need to make time to build back those conversations and have that kind of talk. We're speaking with Elizabeth Bernstein of the Wall Street Journal. Elizabeth, your story suggests that some people might want to just kind of try this out part time before going full bore. Yeah, that's a great idea because you don't know if you really like it. Maybe you're going to miss cuddling in bed or you're going to miss your partner breathing next to you or holding each other all night. So, you know, and it's frightening to say, you know what, we've been married X amount of time or we've been together X amount of time and we're going to move to other beds. Uh, So trying it out either part-time or on a temporary basis would be a great way to sort of let those fears settle and, and see what happens. So you can do it five nights a week or weeknights or when somebody has a big project due uh, or somebody's going through a bout of insomnia or you could say, you know, we're going to do it for a few weeks and see how it goes. It's a good trial period. Now, I know you, as always, you talk to a number of uh, couples for your story. Talk about some of their stories and what made them make the decisions they did. You know, it goes back to all those varied ways that we have trouble sleeping with a person. So I interviewed one couple in this story who uh, he snored and he tossed and turned, uh, but she wasn't that innocent either. She was up watching TV. She liked the TV to run all night, whether she was watching it or not. If she'd fallen asleep, it was still going. She liked light. He liked it cold. She liked it warm. It went on and on. And, and they had a lot of problems, and they felt that their relationship, they didn't marry 33 years, but early in their relationship, they felt that they had just become sort of um, almost business partners. They were going through the day, getting, going to work, getting the kids off, parenting uh, well, but they had felt the romance had really gone and that they were cranky with each other and snippy, and so they decided to get separate bedrooms, and that really did everything. She can stay up watching movies and fall asleep listening to them. They weren't just movies. They were murder shows, and he uh, could you know, do whatever, sleep, and keep a fan on at the bottom of his bed, blowing on him. And they were great. They say this really, really impacted their marriage in the in a very positive way. That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka with Wall Street Journal columnist Elizabeth Bernstein. Coming up next, employers helping workers with emergency savings. Did you know traditional bed sheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and other gross ailments. Fears, though, that you can put to bed with Miracle Made bed sheets. Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature all night. Miracle Made is self cleaning, self cooling, luxurious, eco friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. My wife and I love them. Now, my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleep cool all summer and warm all winter. The website, TryMiracle.com. 
com slash Gordon. Claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-made products are backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Again, the website, trymiracle.com slash Gordon. trymiracle.com slash Gordon to save big. You can sleep cool, comfy, and clean. Miracle-made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. Sleep clean with Miracle. Thanks for spending part of your Christmas weekend with us. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka coming up this half hour. A new carry-on luggage debate. Also, how Brenda Lee is missing out. And New York City fascinated with a peeper. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, tens of millions of Americans can't seem to save much money on their own. And a personal financial struggle can turn into a workplace problem. No wonder more employers are paying attention to the savings challenges faced by many of their workers. More from Russ Wiles, personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic. Russ, set the scene. Yeah, I mean, we're in a situation where anywhere from maybe 40 to 50 percent of the public has really no very little in terms of liquid savings, maybe not even able to meet a surprise $1,000 you know, bill. And it's gotten to the point where uh, some employers are starting to take interest in this topic and, and offer some sort of a emergency savings rainy day benefit, you know, along with their more traditional options such as healthcare, retirement savings, and so on. Mm. All right, so who's doing what in this space? Give an example. There's, there's a, a, a number of companies that are coming out with some sort of emergency savings account programs. Uh, uh, BlackRock, Vanguard have one. I took a look um, more recently at a company called SecureSave, which uh, is founded in part, uh, interestingly enough, by Susie Orman, the financial commentator. And, uh, you know, they have an interesting situation where this is their this is the only tool they the only financial product they they offer they're not trying to sell you or you know promote retirement accounts or credit cards mm-hmm. anything else they are a, a pure emergency savings account uh, company and they have teamed up with a few companies uh, such as a few employers I should should say uh, such as humana that's that, that'd be one example the the healthcare insurer insurer Got it. We're speaking with Russ Wiles, personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic, part of the USA Today Network. His piece is called Your Employer Can Help You Save Up for a Rainy Day. Um, So that said, how are you to choose then 401k versus an emergency fund? You can have both. And I think that's the the plan. I mean, the companies that, that are offering the emergency savings account are not, they also offer 401k, 401k plans. And that's really the more important program. I mean, that's long-term savings and people who stick with a 401k plan for many years will have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. These emergency savings accounts are just really focused more on helping people get into the habit of savings and helping them build up a little uh, cash of emergency money that they can use for short-term expenses. But truly, you know, you could have both as an employee if your company offers both programs. Yeah, I get that. But I mean, if you're somebody who's really penny pinching or uh, living paycheck to paycheck, is it a difficult decision then? I don't know. But I think uh, in that case, um, you would have to take a look at the, the matching funds. Uh, presumably, the employer will offer a matching fund for both 
you know, long-term retirement accounts and short-term savings. The match will probably be, be higher on the 401k side. But, you know, if you're really struggling, you haven't known how to save throughout your life, the emergency savings account could be a good option for you. Thanks, Russ. Russ Wiles, personal finance writer at the Arizona Republic, part of the USA Today Network. Coming up next, a new debate for carry-on luggage. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Now they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business, evolving your passions. We push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at dell.com slash welcome to now. That's Dell.com slash welcome to now. Hey, glad you could spend part of your holiday weekend with us. From info about why things are the way they are to strategies for securing overhead bin space, here's what you need to know about luggage when you travel. Insight from Zach Wichter, travel columnist at USA Today, who advocates, how about this, for all airlines charging for carry-on luggage. Zach, why? Yeah, so I know that this is going to be an unpopular opinion, But my sort of take on this is if airlines are going to charge for something, they should charge for the thing that people most want. So when I travel, I really prefer to travel with only carry-on. And I think it's actually a way to help speed up the boarding process. If they charged people to carry their bags on and let them check for free, I think some number of people would pay for the convenience. I certainly would. But a fair few would forego carrying on a bag that goes in the overhead bin, check their luggage instead. Uh, And I think that that would speed up the boarding process. So I think it would both be a moneymaker for the airlines and would actually be a more efficient way to travel for a lot of people. So again, I recognize that (laughs) I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. I don't think that people actually want to have to pay for carry-on bags. But I think that in terms of incentive structure, which is what these fees are supposed to be about anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I think that it may be better than the checked bag fees that pretty much every airline charges right now. All right. I can, I can see your point on that. Talk about bags more broadly and why it is that we need to weigh them. Yeah. So it really comes down to safety, both for the airplane and for the people who work below the wing on the tarmac. So. Airplanes, especially small airplanes, are pretty sensitive to weight distribution. And again, want to emphasize here that it's more an issue on small airplanes where a little bit of weight here versus there can really affect the center of balance and the center of gravity. And so part of it is just that uh, pilots on all size aircraft need to know what the weight of the plane is so they can figure out you know, their takeoff parameters, how much fuel they can load, that sort of thing. And then the other reason is that the folks who are loading the bags onto planes need to be aware if it's heavy, essentially, right? Like they're going to handle it differently if it weighs 100 pounds versus if it weighs 25 pounds. And so it's really more about safety, both of the flight and of the workers. And sure, the airlines may use the weight of your bag to extract a couple extra bucks from you, uh, but that's pretty secondary. The safety concerns are the primary thing. Hmm. We're speaking with Zach Wichter, travel columnist at USA Today. He's written a piece called Answers to Your Bag Questions. I always find it puzzling, like uh, you you show up 
to weigh your bag and your your yours is 55 and your spouse's is 42 and you know you can take stuff out of the heavy bag and and put it in the lighter bag and and, That's av- right. and avoid the fee and you're still at like roughly what I don't know you know 98 pounds for both Exactly. And so that that's really where it goes back to what I was saying before, where that the weight of each individual bag matters to the person who handles the bag. And so that's why they set those limits uh, and kind of give you a hard time if it's over the limit. It's not because it makes a huge difference to the plane if you have 98 pounds of luggage distributed over one suitcase or two and how those how those pounds are distributed it's really about the folks who are loading those bags onto the plane they need to know if it's going to be a heavy bag that they're about to pick up because it could change kind of the way that they handle it and if it's especially heavy it can also be an injury risk to them Mm. and so it's more about making the folks below the wing aware of what they're about to pick up and is it always the case that there's not enough overhead bin space Pretty much, yeah. Uh, certainly, I fly a lot, um, and on almost every flight that I've been on recently, towards the end of the boarding process, they have to start gate-checking bags. Thanks, Zach. Zach Wichter, he writes the Cruising Altitude column at USA Today. Brenda Lee, the 78-year-old artist who now has a number one hit that's been decades in the making, may not get much of a financial windfall from her new success. A look at the business model of rocking around the Christmas tree from Charles Passy, reporter at Market Watch. Charles, what did you find? Well, you know, look at it. Brenda Lee, 78 years old. Her, her big hit, rocking around the Christmas tree, uh, goes all the way back to 1958. You know, all these years later, I mean, think about how many years later, 65 years later, it's finally uh, risen to number one. And guess what? She may not make, she may not make much money from this. I mean, it's really you know. I mean, I mean, not that Brenda Lee is probably starving. I want to be clear about that. But if if, if she's looking for a big payday, she may not get it. And there's a lot of reasons why. But basically, the big 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 one here is that the way the music industry is geared is it's the songwriter who really makes the money. And you know, nobody's knocking the fact that the songwriters deserve the money, but the artist. Um, if the artist has no songwriting credit, um, really doesn't get the royalties that flow in. You know, even when you talk about something, although it's less uh, uh, an important platform as it once was, what we call terrestrial radio, turning on the radio dial, artists get nothing from that. Hmm. Um, Songwriters do, but artists get nothing from that. And this was based on deals and contracts that were set ages ago. Let's just say she happens to get a piece of Spotify, the amount of money, um, and, art, and again, songwriters almost always are guaranteed to get something from these platforms, but, you know, um, Spotify, the amount of uh, money an artist generates per stream, it doesn't even equate to half a cent in the best case scenario, oh, wow. typically. So, so, I mean, so yeah, the, 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 the money for the, for, the, for the artist is not that great here. We're speaking with Charles Passy, reporter at MarketWatch. His piece is about why 78-year-old Brenda Lee may not see much money from her number one hit, Rocket Around the Christmas Tree. How much would she make, perhaps? So we talked to one expert who said, um, you know, she might make a quarter of a million dollars from this. And, and, you know, that's when you add in all these other factors of, you know, this royalty stream, this royalty stream. Again, not big money. What she could end up doing is, is 
you know, generating some personal appearances. But even that's not going to be a huge mm. payday. Maybe another hundred, another hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars, according to the people that we spoke with. Again, this is certainly not bad money, but it's nothing like you would think having a number one song on the charts would generate. Right. Uh, somebody like Brenda Lee is even in a more troubling position in that you know she's an older artist, which means her deals were likely signed decades ago, and the older deals that artists signed were not favorable. I mean, we know this from all the legends we've heard about yeah. who really didn't do well in the end. So yeah, so she's basically you know they now it's possible things could have been renegotiated, but even then you know catalog artists, legacy artists. They tend not to fare so well in these kind of scenarios. The key difference here with um, Mariah Carey is that her song, All I Want for Christmas is You, is her song. She co-wrote it. Um, and that writing credit is what really gives her so much income. I mean, it's been estimated anywhere from 2.5 to $3 million a year mm. that that song generates. Mind you, she's not number one. You know, Brenda Lee is number one. But Mariah Carey wins the game of royalties because she has that songwriting credit. And, and honestly, she's also had um, a good ride with that song. Um, I mean, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree has surged again. And, and it's, you know, it's been always in the background. But, you know, All I Want for Christmas has been the dominant contemporary uh, Christmas song um, for the last, you know, really the last decade or two. So anyhow, so Mariah wins the game on this one, I have to say. Thanks, Charles. Charles Passy, reporter at Market Watch. Coming up next, the New York City residents trying to befriend a peeper in their window. Well, we'll finish with this. An escapee in New York City is peeping into windows. One recent morning, Riley Richardson woke up to being watched. She jumped out of bed, went to the window of her Manhattan apartment, and fell to the floor when she saw the peeper. Then she grabbed her phone and took video. The Wall Street Journal says the peeper is a two-foot-tall eagle owl who's become a New York City celebrity. CNC escaped a zoo last February. His name is Flacco. He makes his home now in Central Park after being born 13 years ago at a bird sanctuary in North Carolina. Flacco is a gawker, sometimes standing outside windows with his beak to the glass and his large round eyes peering inside. Central Park Zoo officials have given up trying to catch him, assuming he might need help fending for himself. Yeah, well, he's been hunting and swallowing rats. The executive director of the International Owl Center says it's possible, possible that Flacco has taken to peeping behavior because he sees humans as potential mates. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Koshenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend.